Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And this week, I'm kicking off a new periodic series called Endangered Structures, looking at interesting buildings around Memphis that are looking for a reuse potentially. And the first of those is the Baron Hirsch Synagogue, on Valent- the former Baron Hirsch Synagogue on Valentine in the Vecca neighborhood. And uh, pleased to welcome this week Josh First, who's a resident of Vecca and wrote a very interesting article in a new uh, Vecca publication called Vecca Voice about the synagogue. So I invited him to come on and talk a little bit about it. And also, we're going to talk briefly about. Aveca celebrating its 50th, the Aveca neighborhood celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. And I want to talk about that just for a minute. So welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you so much, Emily. I, I really appreciate you inviting me. So I think people, um, so I think probably most people know, but can you just remind people very briefly, I mean, Vecca, I think of sort of the northern neighborhood in the Midtown area, but can you remind people what roughly what the boundaries are and people, it's actually Valentine, the Valentine Evergreen neighborhood is the formal name. People call it Vecca, but just mm-hmm. remind people what the, um, what, what the boundaries are, if you would. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, Vecca stands for Valentine Evergreen Community Association, right? So VECA is not the name of the neighborhood. It's the name of the community association uh, associated with the neighborhood. And that the boundaries are on the west side, approximately Cleveland Avenue, <clears throat> and then on the north, uh, Cypress uh, Avenue. Uh, on the south, it's uh, Parkway. And on the west, uh, I'm sorry, on the east, um, I Tre- think it's... Trezevant? Trezevant, maybe Springdale, somewhere around there. I think I think the eastern boundary is the least um, sort of amorphous, or the most amorphous, as it were. Right. But and that's approximately where we have it. Well, and of course, you've got Hind Park in there, which is not yeah. technically. Well, it's true. People do call the neighborhood Vecca now, yeah. um, which is a testament to the enduring success of the community association. And Absolutely. hopefully we'll talk about that. But, but first, I want to talk about... And I don't know if people are familiar about it, but this is a, a huge um, former synagogue, former church building on Valentine Avenue. And I want to talk, talk about the building, but also about sort of the relationship of those congregations with the neighborhood over the years. So Josh, just starting out, I mean, when did that synagogue move into Vecca? And then what was significant about that um, at the time? Okay, so synagogue moved into the neighborhood in the early 1950s, and it wasn't an immediate move in the same way that they left the neighborhood over the course of a fairly long period of time. But they came to the neighborhood from downtown, from 4th and Washington, and the small building that's now just a parking lot. I actually plugged my car into um, one of the electric uh, you know, electric uh, outlets there that now are in that parking lot. It's across from the Shelby County Jail. They came to the neighborhood. Uh, they, be, they they actually purchased the land from a golf course in 1945. Okay? That's very interesting as well. Yeah. There used to be this huge gar- golf course, uh, which is now this neighborhood and this huge synagogue, right? This huge building. Um, they bought the land at that time. Um and with the intention of not only building a, this this ginormous football field sized synagogue, but also a neighborhood to go along with it, right? Um, that began in earnest during during the late 1940s, early 1950s, and they had about half of it done in 1952, uh, and then they built the rest, um, uh, which uh, in the second half, which included this, the um, sanctuary and the Sunday school. Uh, by 1957. So by then they were fully moved in to uh, the Valentine neighborhood uh, 
area, and a lot of the houses had been built at that time too. Uh, and if you actually go, if you sort of drive around to the east uh, of the synagogue, you'll see a style of house that is very different than the style of house in the rest of Vecca. Well, um, I want to talk, talk about that because yeah. a lot of Vecca is kind of midtowny. I mean, it's a lot of bungalows. That's mm-hmm. that's known for the huge concentration of bungalows. And we did a show about its landmarks designation. But you're right, to the east, it's completely different. It, talk about that and then why. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, they they look like suburban ranch style houses, right? I mean, especially the ones that have been fixed up more recently. Uh, some of them are still in 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 disrepair, but you you feel like you're in the suburbs all all of a sudden. You know, you're you're in like East Memphis um, uh, when you go to the Valentine Hills neighborhood. And the reason why they they built this this neighborhood um, theoretically is because they wanted the community, the Orthodox Jewish community to be uh, to be living around the synagogue so that they could walk to, to, to shul on Friday night and Saturday morning, which, you know, which, you know, Jewish law determines that you need to be able to walk to shul on, on Saturday morning. Because you can't um, drive because you can't drive a car. Theoretically, yeah. Right. Um, the, the reality is a lot more complicated. <laughs> well, so. but Orthodox, I mean, if you go out, I haven't, on a couple of occasions, I've been out, of course, there's a concentration of synagogues, temples in East Memphis. On a couple of occasions, I've been there and seen people, you know, families walking to synagogue. And that's the same. I mean, I think a lot of those East Memphis neighborhoods are heavily Jewish for the, for the same reason, because they're, because they're Orthodox families mm-hmm. primarily. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think we can go too far in sort of, uh, you know, essentializing the Orthodox Jew here. And, and we don't need to do that because the fact is uh, they built the largest parking lot in the entire neighborhood. Why did they do that if everybody was supposed to walk to shul on Saturday? Really? <laughs> I mean, okay. That's and, interesting. And so <laughs> I, I, I think that um, a lot of people drove. And I think we have a lot of evidence that a lot of people okay. to, okay. Um, to, to to the synagogue on Saturday morning. But, people uh, but nonetheless, did, people did uh, walk in from the neighborhood as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think there are non-Orthodox Jews who keep Shabbos uh, and there are Orthodox Jews who do not. Um, but it's definitely more likely that an Orthodox Jew would walk to a synagogue than a Reformed Jew or a conservative Jew. Yeah. So I was in the building only once, and actually it was for a VECA meeting years mm-hmm. ago. I used to live in VECA, and it was for a VECA meeting. But kind of remind, I, I'm sure you went in and doing this uh, story you wrote. So just remind us of, a, I don't want to go too much into the architecture, but just remind us a couple of the really nice elements that you, about the building, the inside or the outside. Mm-hmm. Well, the outside, uh, I think you can get caught up by the immensity of the building and like the sheer amount of like, you know, concrete. Um, but if you really pay attention to some of the, the the elements of the outside, there's this beautiful menorah on on the side of the building. There's some other uh engravings in the um on the outside of the building that the cornerstone is uh you know taken from uh jerusalem limestone uh that uh, has this uh, inscription from isaiah you know here i i set zion stone a precious cornerstone for uh for the assure foundation you know a really important um sort of slogan about, you know, the rootedness of, of the community or the hope that this community would be rooted. But I think the real uh, beauty of this building is inside of it. You know, you need to take a trip inside if, if you get a chance, because the sanctuary is so big. Um, I mean, this was, this was a sanctuary that was supposed to fit, you know, 2,000 people. <laughs> which is just remarkable. Um, it, it's got this um, dome, this this skylight dome that has this beautiful Star of David on it. Um, the bima uh, is ornate with this kind of carved uh, wooden uh, wooden uh, area um, with chairs. With um, um, it, it, the the ceiling has these stars of David, these blue stars of David. The the floor is. Just, you know, uh, you know, sort of wooden floor. 
and uh, it has a ballroom. It has all of this classroom space. I mean, there's so much potential in this in this building that um, I think is 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 it would be really sad to lose. Well, and it was um, wasn't it was de- designed by George Awesome, isn't mm-hmm. that correct? Who was, yes. of course, a very well known Memphis architect. Um, and according to the plans of of, of Belts of uh, who you know uh, Philip Belts was a real estate uh, investor you know with properties all over the country all over the world in fact um, and he was the the president of the congregation and he had a lot of input over Awesome um, and he uh, you know really uh, loved this kind of international style of architecture. Um, and, and I would say it's not only the architect who, who is responsible for, for the style, but also the president of the synagogue, the, um, you know, the, the late great Philip Belts. Well, yeah, a lot of very prominent, um, Memphis families were involved in the effort to move the congregation and raising the money and all of that, the Belts and others. So it's, so, um, Again, sort of going back to your article, which was fascinating, it sounded like the the synagogue at some point decided to move out east. Of course, the, the, the city was moving out east. I, and I had, had a couple questions about that. First of all, did they that building is so big? Did they did they um, also need more space? Do you think the neighborhood was changing? the demographics of the neighborhood changing, or do you think it was really just that the demographics of the city was moving? People were moving from the central city out to East Memphis, part of, you know, white flight or just urban sprawl. And they were just part of that. Yes. And, and I, I, I would compl- complicate it a little bit more too. <laughs> okay. okay. Please do. So, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they came here, they had this huge building. I don't think they needed more space. I think if anything, they needed less space. Okay, Um, you know, Orthodox Jewish communities are shrinking more generally, Um, at least modern Orthodoxy, uh, ultra-Orthodoxy, which is a newer movement, uh, is is gaining uh, credibility. But I think modern Orthodoxy, you know, Zionist Orthodoxy, if you will, uh, is, is a movement that is shrinking. And it began shrinking after the war, um, uh, with the growth of Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism, those, uh, you know, the two largest synagogues in currently in Memphis is Temple Israel, uh, which is a Reform congregation, uh, and uh, Beth Shalom, which is a conservative organization. They had already moved out east by the time that Baron Hirsch had made that decision to also move out east. Okay. okay? So this is this is the driver, right? But we can't, I don't think we can look at it only as a situation of white flight. It's a, it's a unique situation of an ethnic community moving together. And, and we, we can see parallels in Italian communities, in, um, you know, Indian communities, in um, other uh, ethnic communities who move together, right? So it's not just like these are white people, white people are moving out east. It's these are Jews who are moving together to particular neighborhoods out east. Well, and I didn't, I mean, I said that I didn't mean to suggest that that was, I mean, they were a bunch of white people moving out because the neighborhood was turning black. In fact, you know, of course they, they hosted after Martin Luther King's assassination, they hosted a bunch of very important talks and reconciliation events. So, but there, what that was happening at the time. Um, And, um, but that's actually very interesting um, yeah. Uh, I mean, just to add one more point to that, uh, you know, the, the Jewish community, the Orthodox Jewish community, I think is what I discovered in my research is that they were unusually involved in the neighborhood. Um, you, they did not keep to themselves. They hosted concerts. They hosted bingo. They hosted all of these events for Jews and non-Jews alike. And so I think that's that's an important dimension to this. And uh, they were part of this conversation about racial reconciliation on the, you know, the aftermath of the King assassination. So um, I, you know, I came to an appreciation of this community, but I also, you know, I mean, we also need to, uh, you know, critique it where we can, right? That that they did leave this, not only this building, but they left this neighborhood. Um, 
as part of a general sort of movement on transit demographic transition. And that's what that's what people I talked to at the congregation were said. We won't move back to Midtown unless the demographics change. So well, well that's I thought was very interesting because it sounds like they kind of they decided to move, but they sort of took their time. And it mm-hmm. there was a it sounded to me like a little bit left the neighborhood in limbo because um, they had a new facility. They were worshiping out there. They're still using the old building. They didn't actually put it up for sale, but it was less and less used. Um, elaborate, on, I don't want to elaborate like an effort to make it a community center. It was, just sounds like the community was um, frustrated a little bit that there was a sense of limbo. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I can't speak for for people at that time who were not part of that community, but um, there is a sense that what what's going to happen here? They're not telling us what their plans are, but it seems like they're leaving. So, um, yeah, go ahead. So um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis uh, on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to Josh first, and we're talking about the Baron Hirsch Synagogue building uh, in the VECA neighborhood and the relationship between those two. So, um, and so at some point it was sold to Gethsemane church, mm-hmm. um, and which is part of the Kojic faith. And uh, when did that happen? And what was that relationship as close? Did they have a, also have a close relationship with the neighborhood or, or not? Well, they did and they didn't. Okay, so Kojic is um, Church of God in Christ. Um, it's an evangel- evangelical, um, Pentecostal, largely African-American uh, Christian church um, that was founded in Memphis. So in that respect, it's a, it's a very local church, right? They bought it in 1992 um, to establish a bishopric and uh, you, um, and and a local congregation. And to answer your question, in some ways they were, they did continue to be part of the of the community. They hosted several VECA annual meetings. and there there seemed to be good relations between VECA and and the church, even to this day, despite some problems that I could go into. But um, when I visited and when I was um, sort of given a tour by the deacon of the church, uh, he he was very aware of, Becca and individuals who were active in Becca and um, spoke at best neutrally, <laughs> you know, at worst, I guess, neutrally about about Becca. So I, I think the the relationship is good. At the same time, it's clear that they wanted to develop this property above and beyond just having a church, having a you know some church offices here, and they wanted to uh, develop a senior center uh, to generate some more income, and that's where there was some tension between Becca, between local residents, and and this new church. Um, but you know, it didn't happen. The senior center didn't happen. I think that's one of the reasons why they they wanted to get out because they didn't have the money to maintain this this enormous property if they weren't using it all. Well, when I was in the building, which was quite some time ago, it did look like there was some deferred maintenance. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think I mentioned when we were emailing before this interview that I was on the land use control board. So if people who don't know, the the Memphis and Shelby County Land Use Control Board is the equivalent of what most communities call a planning commission. And different kinds of planning cases come through for approval. And the church wanted to build senior apartments and a senior center on part of the land and actually voted in favor of that, even <laughs> though the neighborhood was against it. I like to think of myself as, a, as an, an advocate for neighborhood voice, but in this particular case, I thought it was a good idea um, and was voted down. And I want to actually circle back to that in a minute um, because the, so the church is, um, the the you know sort of going back to why I'm calling this an, an endangered structure is because the church it's on the market now the building's on the market has been for some time and so what's the what would the neighborhood uh, like to see there um, what are the neighborhood's expectations how involved have they been in trying to shape that discussion. 
Well, I, th- I can't speak for everybody in the neighborhood, but I can speak for, you know, people that I've talked to um, myself, inclu- you know, I can speak for myself. And I think we want someone to buy it that's going to use it as a building, right? We don't want this building to be bulldozed and something else to be in its place. This is a historical structure. Um, it's, it's really unique. Uh, the entire neighborhood that's built around it um, assume that this structure would be at its center. Um, and I, I, you know, I would love to see something that would use the building in a similar way that, for example, Crosstown was developed, if we could do something like that, um, which would bring people into that space, use it in its entirety. As you said, there was a lot of deferred maintenance and that deferred maintenance is related to the fact that most of the building was unused for the entirety of the period that Garden Gethsemane occupied it. So we need to think about who can buy this building and use it um, in its entirety. That That's the key so that it doesn't get destroyed. Well, the I mentioned earlier that I did a, pro, uh, a program you know, four or five weeks ago called The Challenge of Churches and, and really was about you know, what happens when a congregation moves and a church is left in the middle of the neighborhood. And we had someone from the Heights on, but also uh, someone who is a, you know, experienced real estate, commercial real estate broker. We talked about all the different ways, you know, people use them for special events facilities and schools sometimes, sometimes they're mixed use. They've been, churches have been converted to housing, but this this building is huge. It is an extra challenge. And I think mixed use, it, it, it could function very well as a mixed use structure, you know, housing, retail, um, community center. Uh, I mean, one of the, the, the things that was planned back in the 1970s before Baron Hirsch left um, was to have it be a sort of Cypress um, neighborhood community center. And that was shot down by pretty much everybody. Uh, But let's bring back that idea. You know, Um, let's really try to use this building once again to develop the neighborhood. Garden Gethsemane, you know, despite the fact that they uh, um, hosted VECA annual meetings, was not really connected to the neighborhood because um, as the deacon told me, as the pastor told me, none of their congregants were actually from the neighborhood. I mean, most of most of the area north um, of, of Jackson and Valentine is to this day African-American, and yet none of their congregants were from that neighborhood. They were from places like Whitehaven and other parts of, of Memphis. And so I think, you know, in that respect, there was there was kind of a lack of awareness of what their role could or should be in the neighborhood. And they tried their best. I I in no way want to criticize them, but it's just a a feature of churches today that people don't go to church. People don't attend synagogue largely in the neighborhoods that they live. And and that's not just a problem in Memphis, although it is a big problem in Memphis. Lots of, I mean, there's churches everywhere in Memphis, and yet somehow people travel to other neighborhoods to go to church. Well, I think (laughs) people go to their home church sometimes. um, Mm -hmm. And, um, for, for sure, that's true. Small churches and large churches, I see that as an extra challenge. A lot of times, they their congregants are people from outside the neighborhood. So, but but I'm envisioning. I mean, this is a tough one. Um, but I'm envisioning if someone's interested in the building, um, they're going to want to develop on the land and to make the to make the numbers work, the old back of the envelope, to make the numbers work. Um, I'm not a real estate professional, but I'm just, if someone's interested, I'm envisioning that. You know, someone wants to do a master plan, maybe with some housing or maybe with some offices or other things, and which would be more density on that spot. And I'm sure that's the, that wouldn't be the most desirable outcome for the neighborhood. But what's your sense of if that would be palatable if it looked like that was going to be necessary to have the building be preserved? I don't know. I think I think the neighborhood should get behind it, but I am not I, I'm not on any of those um, 
those, in any of those discussions. I'm not uh, asking you to speak on behalf of anyone. Just what's your sense? I mean, to me, I would be, yes, we need to save this building. There's a lot of land here. I personally don't have a problem with multifamily housing, if it's done right. And um, I would be in favor of it. But, I, but you know, people are, I mean, they people were adamantly opposed to apartments on that property last time. And it wasn't that long ago. I think the mood in the neighborhood is like, we're all about historical preservation. And so if, you know, if I were to you know, uh, look at how VECA would react to um, a buyer who was interested in developing the property and not tearing it down. I think they would they would be okay with um, some mixed use, uh, with a mixed use structure with some, you know, high density housing thrown in. Well, I would love to see, it would be just, it would be so painful for that building to be torn down. It's such an icon and it's a neighborhood landmark. It just mm-hmm. would, it would be very unfortunate. So hopefully, hopefully that won't happen. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll come back and report on it if we need to. So let's, so let's talk just for a few minutes about VECA. VECA, the organization, as we, as we talked about in the beginning, um, people call the neighborhood VECA now, but it's that's actually the name of the organization, and this is Vecca's fiftieth year, and Vecca just has a a very interesting uh, story. So, just tell us a little bit about um, you know when it was founded, and you know the whole era of blockbusting, and why. Uh, just uh, I don't think a lot of people know about that. Yeah, so VECA was founded in 1971, um, you know, sort of concerned citizens organization, not a kind of like homeowners association, as as you might imagine, but a a community association of activists who were trying to preserve the neighborhood in um, an era of transition, okay? And by a transition, of course, um, we mean sort of demographic racial transition um, that was driven by, you know, property speculation in East Memphis and, um, and, a des- and a desire, you know, a concerted desire to see the, um, the, the Eastern suburbs develop, right? And so they wanna preserve the neighborhood um, I, you know, I think they wanted to preserve, I mean, there's a lot of talk in the early, what was called the evergreen news. Now the VECA voice, it's, it's gone through many transitions over the years, but we can see it very obviously uh, in the language that they use. They want to preserve the quote unquote biracial um, character of Valentine Evergreen. I mean, that um, was revolutionary at the time, you know, to sort of intentionally say, mm-hmm we like it this way. We want to keep it. Right. Yeah. And, but at the same time, I think the understated point here is we also want to preserve property values. Okay. And the, and the, and the line that I use in my article is they wanted to make sure that the African-Americans moving into the neighborhood were of the same class as the white people moving out (laughs) of the neighborhood. Um, So I, I, I think we need to, accept that as, as, as part of this revolutionary plan that they had. (laughs) (laughs) I, that's, I didn't realize that. So, um, that's my interpretation. Okay. (laughs) So that's, that's that's very interesting. Well, and, um, I mean, and the, the, I mean, of course, you know, blockbusting, uh, is, which is, you know, you know, this neighborhood's turning black, you better sell your house now. Um, Mm -hmm. that, reduce property values uh, significantly when when neighbors neighborhoods changed over and um, so I, I get wanting to preserve property values and but the way that was expressed is funny so I mean yeah funny not I, funny haha and funny peculiar <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean they saw this as the only way to kind of roll with the changes right but not be you know, undersold. But but the fact is the neighborhood was changing, okay? Um, I mean, this was a neighborhood that was largely ethnic in character. Um, you you listen to all these um, 
these these sort of uh, oral histories that were conducted by Rhodes in the in the uh, late 1970s. And I mean, this was a neighborhood of Jews and Greeks and and um, uh, and other ethnic groups that kind of kept to them, themselves. And the and the average age was was rather old. And so what's happening to the neighborhood um, right around the time that Vecca is, is, is being founded is the neighborhood's getting younger. Um, it's becoming less white ethnic and more just sort of generically Memphis. Okay. It's becoming uh, during this time, a microcosm of Memphis in a way um, where the, 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 the white people are not part of these ethnic enclaves. They're just, generically white. And, and then we also see uh, migration of, of African-American families at the same time. So it's not like we're going to keep our biracial character. It's, in a sense, inventing this biracial character in the process of, 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 of you know, construction. Of, of, of so, not construction, inventing the biracial character in the process of, quote unquote, preserving it. Well, and that remains true in the neighborhood in the neighborhood today. Um, I mean, it's one of the most diverse neighborhoods that I am aware of, and in a, in a city where, you know, neighborhoods are pretty segregated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and again, I, I think that if you look at Vecca as a whole, you see an incredibly biracial you know, diverse group. But then on the street to street level, I think you still see a lot of segregation. Um, I live on Avalon between um, Jackson and Tutwiler. Very diverse street. But um, there is a dividing line. Most the the north side of of my block is predominantly African-American, not entirely, but predominantly. and And the south side of the street is predominantly white. So um, in like segregation exists within the broader character of diversity that is often touted. Sure. Well, one of the things I've always admired about VECA is just that it's maintained. I'm sure there's been some ebbs and flows, but it's been, you know, well organized and active throughout its history. You know, it's I, I'm sure you know, it's hard to get neighborhoods, um, you know, a lot of times neighborhoods, they rally around when they're fighting something, and then they, you know, they wax and wane depending on, it's hard to engage a neighborhood on an ongoing basis year round. Um, of course, it's a big neighborhood, but the, you know, you've got the newsletter, you've got a number of annual events. Is there some sort of secret sauce that this has allowed VECA to, to really maintain that well-organized character where a lot of neighborhoods just aren't able to do that? Yeah. I mean, I see, I think we see ebbs and flows throughout the years of VECA's existence. I'm, and we see that very clearly in the, in the archive of the the newsletter. I mean, there are times where the newsletter wasn't more than like two pages of typewritten text, okay? And then compare that to this period not now where we have, you know, a flow, I guess, where Rebecca Voice is this beautiful, you know, beautifully laid out, full color um, uh, newspaper, magazine even, right? Um, uh, you know, so what, how does it keep on coming back? Um, I think the Green Line, the V&E Green Line, is a big part of it. Um, this was uh, this came about, you know, um, uh, in 1996. Um, kind of, it's a midpoint in Becca's existence. And the, what the Green Line did is, I think it, it it brought in a lot of volunteers who were needed constantly to help maintain what had been a garbage dump in many ways to transform a garbage dump into uh, a functioning trail. Um, and so that the constant energy that the Green Line demands from volunteers, from donors, from 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 organizers um, is is in large part what what gives Becca its its drive. But that's not it. I mean, this this desire for maintaining uh, property values, maintaining the character of the neighborhood that that sits at its origin, I think is 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 constantly you know there's constant new campaigns. To, um, to to revitalize things, you know, with Jackson Avenue, with with other parts of the neighborhood, with the Landmarks uh, Committee. I mean, all of these things are, are you know, uh, every kind of sub generation has its own kind of issue that they that they pursue, and and that's great. I mean, I was at the virtual uh, Vecca annual meeting 
last January. And I was like really enthusiastic about the number of young people that were involved. You know, I mean, I, I, when I came here and, and started getting involved, I, I, I joke that I'm like, I'm the young, I'm the youth here and I'm like in my forties and that's not good when someone in their forties is the younger generation involved. Right. And so what I saw are people in their twenties and thirties getting involved and that's, that's great. You know, I think it bodes well for the future of, of the neighborhood. For sure. Well, and Vecca's also always been really good about having sort of fellowshipping activities like the ice cream social. And so people that don't want to come on a committee, be on a committee, there's opportunities just to come out and meet your neighbors. And those really strengthen the bonds. Absolutely. And we're going to bring the ice cream social back. That's been gone for a couple of years. So this summer, it's going to be in front of uh, Kirby Station on Avalon and Tutwiler. And um, hope hope that people can come out for that. Definitely. Well, the I mean, talking about the Green Line, I mean, I was, of course, you know, a couple of years ago, um, Memphis Shelby County did a big regional green print plan. And of course, we have Wolf River, you know, the Wolf River Greenway and the Shelby Friends Green Line. And I, this is a couple of years ago, you know, was joking with Dr. Mike Kirby about it, about how people don't really know, like FECA was kind of the first. <laughs> and now everyone's talking about all these big green lines, but FECA's had one. Um, in fact, I, in fact, the, uh, I want to do a show later in the year about the 20, FECA neighborhood the, the community association is celebrating the 50th anniversary, but the VECA Green Line is is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. And I want to do a show just on that later in the year because it was, the, I think, the original um, official Green Line in Memphis. And that just deserves, deserves to be called out and celebrated. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to shove it down everybody's throat, but I mean, it's true. <laughs> Why not? We did it first. Why not? We were there first. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm taking ownership of it. We were there first. Um, the um, also, I don't think people in the because because the Deca also started what was one of the first community development corporations in Memphis. Um, I think partly in an effort to, you know, stabilize some of the housing and that organization was eventually folded back into the community association, but, you know, did a lot of housing rehab and did some small commercial redevelopment projects. So there's all kinds of interesting and important work that has done in that neighborhood over the years. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Josh first, who's a VECA resident. We've been talking about the possibly endangered Baron Hirsch Synagogue building on Valentine. If you're not familiar with that, drive by uh, and look at it. It's really, it's something to behold, <laughs> I have to say. And also just talk just for a minute about the VECA neighborhood, which is the Community Association is celebrating his 50th anniversary this year. So, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Emily. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the second part of Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm pleased to welcome back one of my regular commentators, uh, Charlie Santo, who's the director of the City and Regional Planning Department at University of Memphis. So welcome back, Charlie. Hey, Emily. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, Charlie, what's new with you? What's uh, Is it the, the semester wrapping up? And remind me if you're just doing virtual or in person or kind of a hybrid. I mean, how's the school year going for you? Yeah, we just wrapped up. Actually, we've got uh, graduation coming up on Saturday. So yeah, it's been the strangest uh, year, academic year in in academic history. I think we've been um, we've been almost entirely virtual for the for for the year. We've had we had an opportunity to go back on campus in a sort of a limited capacity in February, and 
we did it on sort of a class by class basis in our department. So we've had one class that's been meeting in person, but most of it's been been virtual. Um, but I am very much looking forward to next year when we're going to be back in person on campus and you know being able to create that that group mentality among students and and you know getting to to see each other and talk in the hallways and before and after class. Those those things are really important. Well, working yeah, the, the working in teams, the collaboration piece is a big part of the program, especially since you know, planners in the, you know, in the professional world, I mean, it's, no no one works alone. It's all about collaboration. Um, But also, I mean, there's a lot, when I was in the program, there's a lot of field work. I mean, you're out in the field, um, you know, taking pictures and, and looking at parcel types and talking to stakeholders and, you know, some of that, I mean, you can't really do a parcel survey on Zoom. I mean, I guess you, I guess you can, but it's, um, it's. No. I'm sure that was somewhat constrained. Yeah, I mean, I think you can do a parcel survey on parcel parcel survey on Google Maps, but that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Right. right. It's supposed to be ground truthing that that data. So yeah, right. you got to get out there and do it. So, um, so in the fall, also you're kicking off the the School of Urban Affairs and Public Policy is kicking off its first ever doctoral program. And so have you put together the first class for that and who's in it? Um, I mean, is it, is, I, no, I don't mean names. I mean, <laughs> is it a mix of local people and people from around the country or so what can we expect in terms yeah. of? Yeah. So we, we did, we recently finished up the uh, admissions review um, we've got a good class. We've got, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a mix of part-time and full-time. Um, I think we've got six full-time folks that we admitted and six or seven part-time. Um, and it is some, some most, I mean, obviously all the part-time folks are local folks, people that are, are practicing in various forms of community development uh, related work. Uh, the full-time folks is an, an interesting mix. We have a few international students, um, We've got a couple of local folks, but yeah, so we've got we've got people coming from everywhere, and we've had a huge interest. Um, you know, we had an interest meeting that we had eighty people show up to uh, on Zoom. Um, I think we ended up with uh, thirty, more than thirty completed applications, and we're trying to really limit the the first cohort um, while we get our kind of our, our feet under us and figure out exactly what we're doing. But um, yeah, we're excited about it. That's great. Well, so you know, I think of. Traditionally, I've thought of, of, you know, a PhD programs as things for people who are either going to, um, you know, sort of take an academic route in their career or maybe do research, work for a think tank. Uh, is that the case here or are there more practitioners in this kind of a PhD program or has that changed at all? So we've gone back and forth over the, the multiple years that it took us to create this thing over over what exactly it would look like and what kind of training is going to be provided. And I think we landed on a really nice, flexible model that will allow students really to go either of those routes. So there will definitely be some students that want to get into this and, and pursue the traditional academic job market. Uh, and you can do that with the way we structured it. But you know, we also recognize that there is part of the reason we created this is because we know there's a demand among practitioners in the public sector, the nonprofit sector, the philanthropic sector, um, people that want to build up the capacity and build up skill sets. And so some of the folks that are will come through this program, we know are taking away training uh, to help them do their job here better. And, and that'll be a benefit to the city. That's very exciting. I'm really, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting some of the students who I don't already know that are coming here from other places. So, but the reason I've summoned you here today (laughs) on the Memphis Metropolis is to talk a little bit about a topic of the day. Actually, it was kind of a couple of different topics. I had on Josh first, who is a VECA resident early on, who wrote a really interesting article about uh, Baron Hirsch Synagogue on Valentine in the Valentine Evergreen neighborhood. And we also talked a little bit about the the 50-year anniversary of the VECA organization. So, but just start, so let's start off and t- talk a little bit about the, the Baron Hirsch Synagogue. I'm starting and, you know, I'm very interested in historic preservation and we've done a couple of shows about 
historic preservation, the challenge of churches with one recently. And then also we did a program on Melrose. I'm sure there are others. And so the this was the first and sort of an occasional series I'm starting called Endangered Structures. Mm-hmm. And because this building is so big that it's, um, you know, redevelopment challenge, I do think there's a decent chance that ultimately it will get torn down. I certainly hope not. I don't think anybody wants that. So so what, what were your reflections, if any, on that part of my discussion with Josh? Yeah, I think it was really interesting. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because it's a neighborhood that really seems to know its history, which is really critical. And there's a lot of reasons for that that have to do with the community or association itself. Um, but I, I would guess that a lot of people that are, that are not from that neighborhood or affiliated with FECA a lot of people probably don't know what that building is, right? You see that it's this ginormous, you know, big old limestone building. And you're like, what the heck is that? Well, it's got a sign that says Gethsemane Church, right? So that's that's what it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's this giant, gigantic thing that used to be a synagogue with a sanctuary that seats 2,000. I mean, it's really the the first mega church in the Memphis region. It is! <laughs> so... I mean, it's a it's a building that's got a story, and I think the 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 conversation with Josh was so interesting because you're you're talking about this building, but in 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 talking about the building and its evolution, you're really unpacking the entire history of the neighborhood, which really goes to show why it's important to talk about these endangered structures because you know these buildings are not just buildings; they have stories, uh, and often they're a place uh, a place like that plays a role in the origin of a neighborhood, right? People live there because of a certain religious institution or in a lot of cases because of a certain factory. Um, and that that history is important. It's kind of the soul of the neighborhood. It's the roots of the neighborhood. But that can be forgotten over time as generations go by, people move in, people move out. Um, and when when people start to lose touch with that history, you lose some sense of place and you lose you know, it's part of the reason that people care about a place. Um, and so I think it's important for us in community development work to, to keep those historical connections, to do things like oral histories. And this is something I thought I found really interesting. You know, um, I get this was more than 10 years ago now, but we did a project, uh, a youth project uh, over the summer, and it was called the Youth Neighborhood Mapping Initiative. And we worked with high school students uh, in two different neighborhoods. One of them was the Peabody Vance neighborhood. And partly we were trying to teach them about city planning, give them some job skills. We were teaching them GIS. But we also wanted to teach them to, to sort of recognize and take pride and build on the assets in their neighborhoods. Uh, and this group in Peabody Vance, that was really hard for us to do because they didn't know anything about the, the surroundings, the context of their neighborhood. Um, so these were mostly public housing students, public housing folks that lived in in foot homes and Claiborne homes at the time. And for, to get them to think about, you know, the historical context and the assets in their in their neighborhood was really hard. What we finally broke through is we, we took them to visit the Stacks Museum in Soulsville, which is not their neighborhood, but it's adjacent, right? Kind of same general area. Um, and that kind of sparked an interest that the fact that the history of our neighborhood can gen- could generate significant enough interest to bring in investment and bring in you know attention to a neighborhood. So they started then looking at well, what's the history of our neighborhood? And we worked with Memphis Heritage uh, to explore the history. And they learned that you know the neighborhood that they were in was actually part of what was once on the National Register of Historic Places. And so we worked with them to do a lot of research. And and by the end of the summer. Uh, you know, they were able to take pride in the fact that their neighborhood was home to the Claiborne Temple, where, where Dr. King convened with uh, the sanitation workers. It was home to Robert Church, uh, the South's first black millionaire, and who was the reason that Beale Street became what it became, um, and his solvent savings bank. And so they started to recognize these things, and it really changed their, their perception of the neighborhood. So those buildings and the history are, are, are really important. Well, I agree. And the, I mean, the thing about Peabody Vance, especially, is so much of the physical evidence of the history has been destroyed. I mean, you know, Union Avenue, Vance, those streets were lined with mansions and look nothing like they look today. Unlike neighborhoods like Vec is a great example of, um, you know, a neighborhood that is, you know, the physical 
the original physical assets in the neighborhood are largely there. But mm-hmm. but but something else you mentioned is actually sort of interesting about endangered structures um, because you're going to laugh when I say this because it, uh, because it's I mean on some level the Baron Hurst Synagogue is tucked away. Because it's on, even even if you live in Midtown, like Valentine is not a street, even though it's a it's a it's a not a main drag, but it's a you know a, a fairly major street. You can tell I don't remember my street classifications um, from planning school, but it's uh, but I think it's a be jargon. I think it's well, that's true. We wouldn't want like to use any street. we wouldn't want to use any jargon. I think it's a four lane a four lane uh, road and. But but Valentine's a you know a major artery in the neighborhood, but it's not a street that unlike Jackson or North Parkway, it's not a street that most people in Memphis are going to drive by, and so some of the things endangered structures, um, you know, current and past, like you know, Steric Building. Of course, we put uh, the brewery building in that mm-hmm. category for a long time. We mentioned Crosstown, the old Sears. I mean, those are structures that people drove by. And so yeah. they were top of mind. That concerns me a little bit about Baron Hirsch is because it's not t- that building. It's not top of mind. It's, you know, it's a large building in the middle of a residential neighborhood that a lot of people don't travel on. So that's uh, true. Yeah. I mean, I think to, I think to some extent, the Claiborne Temple is sort of like that, even though it's downtown. I mean, there are so many other ways to get where you're going when you're going downtown that, you know, you might not drive by that building. And it's gotten, I mean, it's got, it's has a really significant role in civil rights history. And so it's gotten its due attention. Um, but yeah, I mean, the historic Messick school maybe, or a historic Melrose school maybe is, is sort of similar to that. It's right. It's a neighborhood landmark that, you know, if you, if you live in Fraser, you don't really know about. Right. Um, so. Yeah, for sure. I'm, but I'm, um, you know, hopefully the thousands of listeners of Memphis Metropolis will will you <laughs> know, get in their them. cars and drive over there. And certainly it's really worth um, checking out. Oh, totally. And the um, and, you know, the the VECA, the VECA neighborhood is so interesting. It's been, um, you know, so well. And Josh and I talked a little bit about this. It's just been so well organized for so many years with, you know, a variety of printed publications and lots of engagement activities. Um, and it's really a testament for an organization, you know, community associations wax and wane, and it's hard to keep them going, especially if you don't have, you know, most of its time, it hasn't had any paid staff. It's, I mean, it was a community development corporation for a while. And at that time it had some paid staff, but generally speaking, it's completely volunteer powered. And same thing with the V&E Green Line, which is amazing. Yeah. I was going to ask about that, the V&E Green Line as a, as sort of an example of, of what this community organization has been able to do. And I think the you know, part of the reason I think that that's a neighborhood that knows its history has to do with the fact that they've always had this newspaper, right? And so as Josh said, you can look back at, at what was written in this newspaper and, and get a sense of what the organization was trying to do. Uh, but I think the V&E Green Line, again, it's a thing that I think maybe not a lot of people that are new, newish to Memphis know about, right? You come to Memphis, you quickly learn about the Shelby Farms Green Line, but the V&E Green Line really is, is the original Green Line. Uh, and there was a very different approach to, to getting that done. Yeah, they had to acquire the property. It was essentially a drainage. They had to acquire the property from the railroad. They had to clean it up. There's lots of ongoing maintenance. And um, they've added a lot of enhancements over the years, pedestrian wayfinding, um, you know, purchasing equipment. For a volunteer entity to do that is, I mean, kudos to them. Yeah, pretty remarkable. So one of the things I thought was interesting, sort of going back to how how organized the neighborhood is, you know, how that organization got started really out of a desire to, um, in part, to fight against blockbusting. And I, th- I was thinking back to some previous conversations, you know, you and I have had about, you know, redlining and just discrimination in housing generally. And, you know, I guess sometimes you know, you think of those, and maybe because some of them are in the past, it's just sort of waves that wash over a community, and it's sort of seen as inevitable. And Vecca just said, no, 
You know, that, <laughs> that wave is coming our way and we are going to stop it. We're yeah. going to change the trajectory. And that that's such a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, and I've read a little bit about this. I know uh, Mike Kirby, the retired Rhodes faculty has written about this a lot, um, written about sort of the history of ECA and the, their role in creating a, uh, a racially diverse neighborhood. And it has to do, has a lot to do with what I think you, you and Josh talked a little bit about the, the, the organization from its outset, um, really putting as essential to its value, promoting this racial diversity um, which is, yeah, you're right. It's rare for an organization that was formed in 1970, 1971 at the time, you know, when in Memphis, that's when white flight was, was the thing. Right. So right. this organization and saying, Hey, um, we're don't, not gonna... let, don't leave white people. Right. Yeah. And so, and I think, I think Josh kind of, you know, hinted at the, 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 the underlying reality of that is that they were promoting racial diversity, but it, maybe it wasn't necessarily like, hey, let's make room for new po- folks to move in. It was more of, hey, white folks, don't be scared off and, and leave. Right. So right. maintain some kind of diversity by letting the folks that are already here remain, which is, you know, that's commendable. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's just, um, it's like I said, it's a, it's a very interesting neighborhood. They've had a lot of accomplishments, and just the fact that they've been around for fifty years and they're still going strong. They just, um, you know, created a landmarks district, and I think that process. I think they're just, I think it's they're dragging it over the finish line as we speak. <laughs> but um, I, I also a big, you know, just a major accomplishment. So Charlie, I meant to ask you when we were talking about the um, about what was happening at university that you were telling me about your playlists that you're creating. So so just I mean you you sent me an idea for a, a theme song for my endangered structures. Um, so tell me what that is, but also just uh, just say a few words about the playlist that you create every year for the departing cohort of students. Yeah. So, you know, since Memphis is a, is a, is a music city, a place where there's a real connection between place and music, we have this tradition in the, in the department of preparing a playlist of songs about cities or about the urban condition at the end of every, every academic year. And so we create the songs of a city soundtrack and we release it at our annual graduation celebration. So I'm just wrapping up volume 11 right now. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, I've got 160 some odd songs, um, 10 hours of music. And so there's a, there's a song on, on this year's list. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, an obscure song from 1984 by a, a British singer songwriter, Robin Hitchcock called my favorite buildings. And it's a wistful song where he sort of laments the fact that all of his favorite buildings are, are falling down or being torn down or sadly impermanent. Um, but yes, that kind of thing. And, and so I've got, we've got s- such a long list of these things that I was able this year to, to sort of package a course around it. So we put together a, a, a freshman honors seminar called The City and Song. Um, just kind of a, a low-key, fun introduction to urban planning, community development issues through song as storytelling. Um, and we talked about, you know, things like urban renewal, the fiscal plight of cities in the 70s, the crack epi- epidemic in the 80s public housing, uh, civil rights and protest songs and songs about suburbanization and gentrification. It's just a lot of fun. You know, only a professor could, <laughs> could, could, could think the way you do. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the fiscal condition of cities in song. <laughs> that's in a, a grabber. Way, right? that's a grabber. It's, it's, uh, it's Marvin Gaye's Inner City Blues and, okay. and Billy Joel, Miami 2017. Okay. Um, so... <laughs> So we are going to do, I've been promising you this, but we are going to do a Songs About Cities live version of Memphis Metropolis sometime in the very near future. And maybe you can, um, just for fun, pull a few. Actually, maybe we should look at your the, the syllabus <laughs> and, um, and you can you know, not really do lectures in between, but talk about the cities and connecting in with some of these themes that might be kind of fun. Talk about why those songs are on the list. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, on that note, Charlie, thank you for coming back to Memphis Metropolis and I really appreciate it. 
You bet. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. Thank you.